This podcast is funded and supported by Wild Common, an additive-free agave spirits company bringing you some of the finest tequila and mezcal on earth. Our goal is to help give transparency to the consumer, provide a cleaner spirit, and support sustainable methods of production with the families that we work with in Mexico. Our product should be available summer 2020. We will keep you posted. Salud. Welcome to the third episode of the Wild Common Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Barden, and the founder of Wild Common Agave Spirits. Today's guest is Charlie Hamilton James. Charlie's a photojournalist specializing in wildlife and conservation. He shot a whopping 11 feature articles for National Geographic magazine and has won numerous industry awards, as well as producing films and shooting them for clients such as the BBC and Animal Planet. Charlie has a knack for these ultra-technical images, and they often require custom equipment specifically engineered for him and his assignments, be it a custom camera trap to silently photograph wild animals as they walk through their natural habitats, a remote flash system to show animals in Tanzania like they've never been seen before, or even locally he shot with a remote-controlled camera cart disguised as a bird to silently approach a male sage-grouse at sunrise. Charlie's only limit when it comes to his photography is that of his imagination. He's currently working on a novel with a hilarious title, which we talk about, and he's about two-thirds of the way through a massive National Geographic assignment right now on the Serengeti in Africa. I've gotten to know Charlie over the last few years as we both live in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I really appreciate his brutal honesty, his sense of humor, and his willingness to have an adventure whenever, such as canoeing down local rivers in the middle of winter to shoot images of wildlife. He's pretty much always game. Today is March 24th, 2020, and I would be remiss to not reference the world events going on right now. Most of us are being inundated with coronavirus coverage causing stress, concern, anxiety, and I'm not an expert in medicine and I'm not going to pretend to be. So please choose your sources wisely when ingesting the current events and let this podcast serve as a reprieve from the daily deluge of bad news. I wanted to let you relax, laugh, and learn something from a world traveler. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Charlie Hamilton James. Charlie. Hi. Welcome to the show. <laughs> I love the fact you call it a show. <laughs> it's not really a show. There's been three episodes. So, okay. Yeah. We'll get there someday. I wanted to bring you on and, and just sort of run through a number of different things. You started as a wildlife photographer, but I've noticed a lot of uh humans you've like become a sociologist or an anthropologist in my mind um why the shift uh that's actually a long i mean i could take up the whole podcast that question (laughs) (laughs) okay so i guess i was a misanthrop growing up you still are yeah well i'm less of one um when i moved to the shetland islands when i was 17 so that I could live in a place with no people. And I wasn't a loner, but I didn't, I just wasn't interested in human beings, really. I was interested in animals. And uh, I just wanted to be a wildlife photographer. I ended up actually not being a wildlife photographer. I ended up going to TV because there wasn't, wasn't enough money in wildlife photography. <laughs> so, so, but really my interest was um, was wildlife. And, um, and you were shooting... Uh you were like running a video camera for TV or you were a host or what? 
Well, yeah, I was doing, well, yeah, I was doing lots of stuff in TV. It all came from camera work, and it all came from photography originally. But so my main thrust was always animals, and then uh, a few years ago, um, I worked in the rainforest with a director called Gavin. Gavin was filming me doing a TV series, and Gavin was is kind of fiercely left wing, and I was always kind of stuck somewhere in the middle, and. Gavin made he opened my eyes to humanity and and an understanding and a care of human beings I think that I'd never that I'd never taken any interest in and it was really to do with the relationship between uh, conservation and 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 humans basically and I I just started to like and enjoy being with human beings and now I'm completely different to what I was you know growing up I love people now um, and that really just changed my photography. I noticed you catch people off guard too by um, saying things that they don't expect often, um, and it's just like it's it's honest. It's what we all think, almost like uh, kind of naughty. <laughs> <laughs> but people appreciate the honesty. Well, okay. So I, first, I I have a joke chirette. So I can't if I think it, I can't not say it. <laughs> so I can't, I can't I have to say it uh, secondly I'm English and I live in the States so I use that Cause it's just to me it's fun so I use it because I know I can get away with saying whatever I like to in Americans just sort of a whiny accent yeah because yeah. they're like oh it's so charming <laughs> <laughs> so I do use it and well, then thirdly I am brutally honest and so and I enjoy being honest so it's yeah. I do. I do like. I, I you know at school I loved being naughty and funny, and I I haven't grown up basically. And it seems like that does open doors, and it does break down. Sort of, uh, you know, it breaks the ice. I guess. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I've never had a bad situation ever working. I've spent you know twenty five years working in in countries all over the world. Um, I've never once been in a bad situation that I couldn't charm and joke my way out of. And and now, I guess, when I go into communities, it's often very tense. If you go into a remote community in the Amazon or in Africa, it can often be quite tense. And my job is to is to make everyone relaxed, make them trust me, make, me, make them like me as fast as I can so that we can all just have fun. And and so I I mess around. And being a six foot four white guy, yeah, <laughs> you don't not, blend in. No, I don't. So I have. I, it's true. I have to think of how can I go into a community uh, in the middle of nowhere and make everyone just relax. You know, the kids run away crying when they see me. <laughs> so how can I how can I change that? And just and and messing around, having fun is one way of doing it. So let's go back to the Amazon. and know that you've spent. Um, a lot of time down there and when I first met you um, you had talked about buying some land down there and it seemed like your intention originally with the work you were doing that down there was wildlife based mm -hmm. is that correct for yeah. conservation yeah. Um, and the last couple of years a lot of the images that I've seen you putting out are from tribes down there mm -hmm. and and you're actively working in conservation efforts down there can you give us a bit of background as to Sort of your purchasing of land down there and, and why that occurred? Yeah, I mean, that's so um, 
I always do. I mean, I have this kind of flippant joke about it that a few years ago I bought an illegal coca plantation by mistake. And I, <laughs> and everyone always laughs. I do it on stage and it's kind of funny. But it's true. And that is what happened. And then I have to go on to explain it. And uh, and to do that is it's fairly complicated. But in a nutshell, um, I was working in Manu National Park in Peru. It's the most biodiverse place on earth. This National is southern Park. Peru? Yeah, south, southeast Peru. Um, and I'd spent years working there and filming giant giant otters, and uh, which you know they have a good population. They're very rare giant otters, but they have a good population of them in Manu. So I've been going there for twenty odd years, and um, I got a phone call one day from a friend Rob, who who uh, who worked out there, and the head of the national park, a guy called Carlos Nietes, had asked Rob to to see if. I'd buy a chunk of land there, and it was at the end of a logging road, and it was adjacent to the national park. So loggers were going up this this road through this patch of land and illegally getting into the national park to log it. <laughs> so they said, can I buy it? So I said yes, and I I bought it. In fact, Rob and I bought it for $10,000 for 100 acres. And the national park guards were going to, build a, a ranger post there and of course being Peru they then didn't <laughs> build a ranger post there so I went out to see it and I had a BBC crew with me because they wanted to make a documentary about this sort of idiot that bought this land in the in the Amazon and um, and we got there and realised actually it was an illegal coca plantation and and that's where that that's how you make cocaine yeah <laughs> That's, that's the raw ingredient. I'll never forget just stumbling through this kind of forest glade into this, you know, like two hectare fields of just rows of coca plants and just it dawning on me what I'd just done. And also I had an illegal logging camp on it and the worst illegal logger in the area lived in the logging camp on the land. And so they're just squatting there because it's a economic opportunity, is that? Right. Yeah, I mean, he'd grown up there. I we'd bought the land off his dad through an intermediary, and so, so this all really came to a head when you know after a few weeks there, I was I was I was very scared to go meet. He's called Ilias, the guy, who, the the illegal logger, and I, all I'd heard was bad things. The, you know, the park ranger said to me, "You've bought the most dangerous." piece of land off the most dangerous family in the most dangerous area of southern Peru. <laughs> I wasn't really what it said in the brochure. So um, so eventually I had to go meet him because I couldn't just ignore the fact that he lived there. You know, and it was a big piece of land. We would, you know, we could scuttle around and avoid each other, but eventually I had to go and meet him. And I did. I found him chopping down a tree with his dad. And, they, and, and they, they, you know, I got the film crew filming me and we kind of burst out in the middle of the forest of this guy with his, you know, mic boom and a camera. <laughs> oh, hi, I'm your landlord. <laughs> and um, I sat him down and I said, look, you've got to get off this land because I bought it for the national park to stop the logging, blah, blah, blah. And and he said, look, I have a severely disabled daughter and if you kick me off the land, I've got nothing. And I remember turning to the camera and saying, yeah, bullshit. I don't believe it. This is, you know, this is just a line he's giving me to make me feel sorry for him. So I said, okay, I'll come round to your house tomorrow and meet her. So I did. I went round the next day, and I, I never felt look, like such an asshole in in all my life. I met Heidi, his little six year old daughter, who 
fallen in a rice threshing machine as a baby and was you know brain severely brain damaged and i met ines's wife who's sitting there crying telling me that you know sometimes she thinks about killing herself and heidi and you know, and then Gavin turns to me and said, are you still going to kick him off the land, Charlie? And I'm like, oh, Jesus. So the whole adventure turned into a sort of grotesque misadventure. And then I was stuck because there was no way as a human being I could come in, you know, a rich guy from another country and boot this guy off the land. So I went on a journey across the Amazon to live with people to work with people to work with the bad guys and the good guys and the the tribes and everything else to try and understand the complexities of conservation in the amazon from a realistic point of view based on my predicament which is what do i do with Ilias? and and so you've felt empathy for this guy is what i'm hearing oh 100 i love Ilias. yeah i mean he's in the it's just like in the eyes of and the going law in. and conservation he's just the most he's the worst form of human but i love him he's a lovely guy and going in um you know to to his home i i think that isn't what you expect when you hear about the baddest guy no we get you know the, in the amazon what the media does it shows us two two things about the amazon it shows us um uh there's this amazing sort of catalogue of, of exotic wildlife. And then it shows us all the bad guys that are cutting it down and burning it and killing it. And what I want to do is find the middle ground and find out, I, I guess, the real truth about how and why that happens. And so on this journey, you went and found other loggers or what happened? Yeah, I went and I went and lived and worked with illegal loggers. Um, Beto Modesto, good friends of mine. <laughs> I went and worked on a gold mine. And, and I mean worked. I didn't just stand around, you know, like Prince Philip saying, oh, this is all awful. <laughs> you know, I actually went and did it. And I lived with tribes and I worked as a shaman's assistant for two weeks. We made ayahuasca. You know, I, I really wanted to get under the skin of the Amazon and understand the, I guess, the predicament of the people that use it to survive, however they use it. And it it completely changed my entire understanding and narrative of not just conservation, but life. Because they're using it in the only way they know how to provide for their family. Absolutely. There's a massive resource that sits on their doorstep and we tell them they can't use it to survive. And it's complete nonsense. <laughs> but but you're coming in also on the front end of this. What I, I remember you saying one in 10 bird species on earth or something lived yeah, and Manu has yeah, Manu has ten percent of the world's bird species in so one national park. Incredibly biodiverse. Oh, it's insane! It's got uh, what is it, six percent of the world's butterflies? <laughs> you know, it's, it's just insane. Oh, it's yeah, it's off the chart. And so you're now in this predicament where you're you're attempting to do your work as a con- conservationist and a photographer, and now you're starting to empathize. and And what is it that you sort of learned through? these interactions with these guys in terms of I, I, I fundamentally the, the western learned. perspective of conservation yeah right? which just butts straight up against reality when you go there no I, the, the fundamental thing I learned is that conservation is a bourgeois concept and until we realize that and take that on board then we're not going to get anywhere which is why I mean conservation has 
it faces insurmountable odds in the sense that it's a massively understaffed and underfunded industry which faces you know an incredibly yeah globally you know it, which faces the whole of humanity and it can't possibly ever win um but our our strategies are improving and we're you know the strategies of conservation is to work with local communities and understand the sort of micro macroeconomics of that are improving and we're moving away from these kind of old school conservation narratives but it, it's based on the fact that people need to survive and they if they have resources available to them they're going to use them and who are we to tell them they can't so if we if we can't tell them they can't how can we work with them to fix those problems and so what have you seen down there that's uh going well or or what proposed solutions do you think would work in areas like that um we so what what i eventually did was was i guess what could work well which is i gave Ilias a job um through a ngo called crease and his job was reforesting that land basically um based on a system of agroforestry so he could he had to plant trees on the deforested land but he was also allowed to grow crops and i remember talking to in when i first offered him the job um him and ines his wife were there and she really led the conversation because her primary concern was what about her crops and it really occurred to me that after talking to her for an hour or two um she just kept banging on about her crops. I'm like, why do you care about a few banana plants? <laughs> you know? and I didn't really get it. And then it occurred to me that, Jesus, that's all they've got. They don't have a pension. They don't have a safety net. They have nothing. Their, their only safety net is what food they have when all the money runs out. And that's why she was so concerned about it. So agroforestry is good because it allows you to you know, replant a forest based on a fairly complex set of growing instructions. Um, what what trees you plant first and how you seed it and everything else but it also allows you to grow your crops within the forest rather than clear cutting forest and, and that, that and that's and if and if you extend that out across you know crucial parts of the, particularly the most biodiverse parts of the amazon it is doable but it is being and it's being done but it's all of course very small scale is that funded by whom a western organization this ngo yeah. yeah and there's lots of them and the, you know if you look at conservation organizations in the amazon africa everyone is mo- they're all not all but they're predominantly started by westerners and there is a movement within them to hand the control over the westerners are actually very good at, at organizing conservation organizations firstly we have the cash in the west to move across but also you know we have cultures that are are really organized and very good at doing that. So the aim is, you know, in so many organizations I work with across the world, is to, and this is, the, I guess, the modern face of conservation, is to move those measures back into the hands of the, the people that live in those countries. And I think it's great that that's happening. And then do you think there's also a balance between true wilderness that is dedicated as, like, no use, just for the biodiverse sort of populations that are down there, or, or does that not work with the local economics? No, I, I mean, the thing about the Amazon, there are, firstly, there are um, protected areas. And secondly, there, is, there are areas that are so vast that there are few people in them anyway. But, you know, if you have indigenous people living in the Amazon without guns, 
animals and people get on fine. There's no real issue. So you don't need wilderness because people are just part of that wilderness. And they always have been. Um, well, for thousands of years anyway. It's when you add certain elements to that mix that we start seeing the degradation of everything. For example? Well, gun. If you give anyone, you know, if you give an indigenous community a shotgun, then suddenly all the animals die. It's like, <laughs> I mean, it's true. And it just, in exactly the same way as all the, I guess, the colonialists, the people from other parts of Peru who now live in those areas of the Amazon, decimate the wildlife. It's exactly the same as if you give indigenous people the tools to do it. Humans are humans, no matter whether you're indigenous or not. If you've got more access to protein because you have a shotgun, you're going to use it. And that's what we do. So if you put a road in or you give someone a shotgun, you're going to see the destruction, the diversity. It doesn't matter whether they're indigenous or not. If you have indigenous communities that are protected and allowed to exist and live the life that they want to, how they want to live, and they don't have shotguns, which is the case in Manu, which is a large Machigenga population and several other um, indigenous groups, and they live in, you know... I don't want to say the word harmony, it's so cheesy, but they do live well with wildlife. They benefit from each other. It's fine. It works. Add a shotgun in and the whole thing goes to hell. And this humans are humans theme, I think, uh, is something almost I've learned from you. Uh, I guess the recognition that we're more similar than we are different. Is that Has that been a takeaway in all these travels that you've done all over the world? I, you get typecast in our job really quickly. I, I became like the guy that photographs tribes in the Amazon. I never wanted to, planned to, cared to. It was just something I ended up doing. So I came into this kind of anthropological photography with no uh, agenda or preconception or understanding of of what indigenous people were. I had no romance. I had nothing. To me, they were just a load of people. And I've tried to maintain that narrative because they are. And, and you know, what the way we tend to cover indigenous people through photojournalism and in the media is that, and particularly in TV, is that we go into communities and, and exaggerate the differences between us to make them look more exotic and romantic and exciting to the viewer. And what I really discovered... The you know the first time I went into these communities was that we could all joke and we could all have fun. You know, if I fart, we're all going to laugh. <laughs> it's true because that's one of the ways I break the ice in these communities. <laughs> so we we were all so much more similar than we were different, and the differences were just most of them just visual anyway. You know, they had less clothes, they did this, they did that. As human beings, we were far more similar than we, we were different. So I, I really wanted to, I really wanted to show that. But the other thing is that you have to take your ego out of it because ego is the greatest killer of journalism. And when you're going into tribes in the Amazon, because almost all of the coverage you see, particularly on TV, Discovery Channel, or whatever, is the the hero's journey of the the usually the white guy going in. And it's all this, you get all this process of the long boat journey they had to take to get to this remote exotic tribe and what a trial it was for them. And it was all, it's all about them. And of course, if you do that, all you're going to, the more you exaggerate the differences, the more of a hero you become. And if you strip all of that bullshit out, you can actually 
recast, relook and re-understand these communities and these people based on just the mundanity and normality of their lives and how similar that is to ours. And that, to me, is the truth rather than, well, the ego. <laughs> and you're... Uh, I'm just going to try your tequila, by the way. Your initial draw there was these giant river otters. So are they eating, like, aren't those rivers full of piranhas down there? Yeah, no, they're, they what are they, four pounds of fish a day each. And they're six foot long and they eat piranhas. I mean, that's badass, isn't it? That's badass. <laughs> They go around in gangs of like 15 of them together. Oh, wow. And then you just posted a photo on your Instagram from yesterday of mm. local otters. So you moved out west. Yeah. Where? Well, where do I live? <laughs> Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Jackson. And I'm mad on otters. <laughs> that was for an assignment a couple of years ago. The Yellowstone issue, right? Of National Geographic. Yeah. So, yeah, I got sent here 2014. I think the seven photographers, we did a full issue special of, of the magazine on Yellowstone. And I was sent out to shoot the cutthroat trout ecosystem. But I very quickly got bored of that and expanded myself out to shoot. I basically, I got given the Tetons, <laughs> which is a lovely, you know, beautiful thing to be given. Yeah, that's a lot. You know, because a lot, the photograph, most of the photographers are based up in the north and Yellowstone, you know, Mammoth and Gardner and all that. But I basically got the Tetons because I lived in Jackson. So it was very scary because, of course, I'm not a landscape photographer. I'm not a pe I wasn't really a people photographer back then. So I was doing these really technical photos of wildlife. And then I started branching out and doing people and everything else. And so these otters you found yesterday are local Snake River otters? Yeah, I'm the only guy that goes canoeing in winter. It's great. No one else does it. I don't know what the hell's wrong with everyone. I mean, it's cold. <laughs> But yeah, we can socially distance in canoes. <laughs> I'll take my own. <laughs> that was lovely. I just I'd seen them. I've been driving. I I've got jet lag, so I drive up to the park at like six in the morning, and I sit on the oxbow bend, and I can see with my binoculars. I can watch the otters with my binoculars, and so for two days in a row, I did that. And I thought yesterday, I'll just take the canoe up and, and have a look. And then four of them just swam over to the canoe, and they were swimming under it and around me and then they were getting out on the ice and playing and i was just you know hanging out with them talking to them i always talk to the animals i work with yeah well we're we're uh, not talking to a bunch of other humans right now so <laughs> and so your family's here yeah all your boys yeah and they're uh out of school yeah they're loving life they're just sitting looking at computer screens and you told me a while back you hoped that they too would turn out naughty. Can you explain that? <laughs> <laughs> it served you well. And you, your high hopes were that they I, too... I, the thing about being naughty is that to me it breeds creativity. I'll never forget listening to Sarah Silverman talking about how her dad enabled her to be naughty. This is a long time ago. And it inspired me to do the same. And I'm, my proudest moments of my kids are when they're really naughty. Uh, well, within reason. And uh, so... And this is like independent thinking naughty or like naughty? Just No, just having the 
just yeah, independent thinking nor. Right. Just think just yeah. I don't care whether my kids do well at school. I, I really don't care. I want them to be smart, funny and confident. And that that's kind of worked out. Some of them. <laughs> yeah, a bit. <laughs> Did the bird ever come back? Oh, don't talk to me about the bird. <laughs> no. It didn't? Fred's peregrine, no. Yeah. Way. So what's the story there? You bought your son a falcon. Yeah, Fred was the youngest falconer in Wyoming for a while. And uh, he had a red tail for a couple of years, and then we bought this peregrine in it. Flew off one night and never came back. <laughs> Will you get him another one? No. 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 Too expensive. Um, let's talk about your book. Um, this summer you were... Talking about being naughty. <laughs> yeah, well, what's the title of it? Talking about being naughty? What What's the title? So... <laughs> well, look, everyone writes these autobiographies. I got asked to write an autobiography, so... I, and everyone writes the same sort of well in our industry everyone's very well behaved particularly in TV camera wildlife camera work and lots of my friends and colleagues have written these books but I wanted to tell the actual truth (laughs) particularly of my experience of it so I'd written a no holds barred account of my career so it's called I Can't Eat My Guinea Pig, I've Had Too Much Cocaine, which is a true story. <laughs> Cusco, circa 1998, I think. <laughs> and um, it really is the all of the really naughty and terrible and illegal and bad things I did as, I guess, a young cameraman in my 20s. Yeah, I'm much more well-behaved now. And how far... How far through it are you? You were chunking it out, I think. Yeah. I Last was, I talked, you were I wrote it pretty far through. Yeah, it was all about South America originally. Yeah. And then the publisher now, it's being published by HarperCollins in, in the UK. And now they want um, they want more of a spread across the world. So I'm de-South Americanizing it at the moment and putting in chapters from Africa and here. And, but um, it's actually... It, it, uh, although it's it's kind of I don't really want to write a book about my life. I want to write a book where I'm the kind of vehicle to tell um, stories. So it's actually a book about realize the realization of conservation as a bourgeois concept, and and how I got to that. You know how I got to that conclusion. So I take the reader on that journey with me. So I didn't want to just write a book and, you know, then I did this, then I did that. <laughs> just be really boring. Who cares about me? So I, I'm just, I'm the kind of idiot that tells you the story. In an honest way. It's brutally honest. Yeah. Yeah. And I've never, I had this, I'm not mean to a single other person in it, but I'm mean about myself all the time. But I wouldn't, I, I don't, I'd never want to be, everyone says, you know, are you going to get sued? I said, well, no, no one's got, no one can sue me because I'm just nice about everyone. <laughs> If there's any arseholes in it, they're not in it. So, so you're going to release this thing in um, multiple sort of smaller chunks, the first one being your life until when? No, I'm just doing one. Oh, I was going to do five. Yeah. There's a lot of fun stories. Um, but now it's just, we're just going for one. And yeah. you. I'm also really sick of writing it now. So Yeah. Were you a writer before this? I've written 
four books. I wrote a spoof on The Matrix. I've nearly gotten the bestsellers list. It's called The Matrix. And it's about, you couldn't say his R's properly, you got in loads of trouble. And it opens, it's, it's so bad. But it opens with like, if you take the, the red pill, you'll experience a world beyond your wildest imagination. You know, you'll reveal your true self, blah, 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 all that. You take the blue pill, you'll get an erection that will last you for the rest of your life. And, you, and the hero character, and he goes, yeah, I'll take them both. <laughs> so, so the whole book is based on, on this this guy with an erection coming out into the real world. So, yeah, it's really bad. It's all well. <laughs> so people, people will email me, um, message me on Instagram, find me on LinkedIn, whatever it may be. And they ask for advice on becoming a National Geographic photographer. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure you get it tenfold. I get it all the time, yeah. And how do you respond to that? Uh, I try not to laugh sometimes. <laughs> Some of them are so bizarre. There's a, there's a generational thing as well where everyone just thinks that you just, like, it's so easy. But it's definitely 19 to, like, 25-year-olds, I think, that are yeah. asking. I don't, I, do you know what? I, first, I don't reply to most of them because I don't I don't have time. I don't really... Um, I do reply to some of them. If I see... Occasionally, I'll look at people's work. They'll message me. I'll look at their work, and I'll like, mm, okay. There's a guy from Jamaica emailed me about... Um, messaged me about six weeks ago. And I'm like, okay, you, yeah. So I'll... You know, I'll follow them, <laughs> and I'll say, "Look, I'm following you. I'll keep an eye on your work, but try and do this, this, and this." Um, what was the question? <laughs> How do you become? What was my advice to become? Yeah, um, I think my advice. Okay, so I say this about TV. I have basically a one sort of mantra for advice if people want to get into the industry: is that there's a thousand people like you trying to get into the business. And the what you've got is a situation where you want something from them. They don't want anything from you. If you can change that dynamic, then you're then you're in. If they want something from you, that so that's what that is what you have to create is a situation where you have something unique to you that they want. And in our business, that's a set of pictures that tell a story that no one's told before. Or someone has told before, but you've just retold it in a better way. And you can only give that advice to someone who's in a position to do that. You can't give that advice to someone who saw your pictures on Instagram and thought, oh, that'd be a fun job. Because, you know, it's pointless. And so that's like using new technology or... um and by technology, I mean uh, techniques and or lights and showing something that we've seen before, but doing it in a new way, being different. Yeah, 100%. If you look at it, say, take a Nand Varma's hummingbird pictures. I mean, they're just mind-blowing. Yeah, they're the best. Yeah. No one's ever going to beat them. No one's ever done anything like that before. It's like he's come along and just trounced everything that anyone's ever done before completely and just created the most perfect set of images and that's that's what i'm talking about you know it's not that's the other thing it's it's insanely difficult isn't it yeah the bar is yeah you got to think of the best pictures you can get and then get 
10 times better than those pages. So it's, you know, it's a, a, a it's a brutal filtering process is what it is. I've started to respond by telling people to shoot um what's uniquely them, right? Like yeah. what they're I, I don't want to use the word like passionate about or um but like documenting their story. And I think the best images that I've seen coming out of some of these photo seminars that we've been to are people within communities mm -hmm. giving a voice mm -hmm. in an authentic way to images that you've never seen. Because if if you go parachuting in, white guy, in the middle of India, yeah. talking about X, Y, and Z issue in certain communities, yeah. it just doesn't it doesn't resonate. Whereas someone local on the ground with a camera who spends a year doing it and they live there. Yeah. It's completely different. Yeah. I doesn't mean I agree with you. Now. <laughs> <laughs> Explain. Well, but, okay. I, I agree. We should, we should employ more local photographers across the world to tell specific stories about those places. Uh, I don't hundred percent agree that, that um, people can't parachute in and tell other stories in the same place. Well, I'm not going to say that we can't. Yeah. But I think that some of the voices that have emerged as a result of technology changing, people yeah. having access to these tools, um, have, have blown me away. Images from whether it's the Arctic or yeah. in the case of India, a um, woman documented what she was calling the slow death, which was um, the water level of a river, Yeah, you know, increasingly starting to demolish a city slowly and slowly and slowly i think you're i think when you're talking about those stories you're 100 percent right i agree and i think that's what we're i think photojournalism is moving towards that anyway isn't it it's the empowerment of people within their communities um i don't think it should preclude i guess parachute photography because i think that has a place too i think i think yeah i think you're right i think both have a place Specifically in regards to like the efficiency of someone with a professional skill set coming in, yeah. documenting issues, creating um, awareness about that issue yeah. on these large platforms that we have. Yeah, that too is important. But you know, so but if someone said, "Oh, can you go and shoot?" You know, stories to make England look beautiful, I'd really struggle. If you told me to go and shoot photos of Oregon looking beautiful, I'd go, oh yeah, hell yeah, that's going to be awesome because I'm going to go there with a fresh set of eyes. But but so I guess it's completely. Um, dependent on the topic isn't it where do you see like what's the biggest miss that you see right now in photojournalism specifically like the conservation work that we do um i heard before you saying that ego was sort of the the, the killer of the authentic experience do you see that translating now that we've become these brands we've we've got these personal brands these platforms do you see ego being an even bigger part of it yeah, I think so. I think um, ego is very pervasive. It's it's very it's, you know it's very easy to be sucked in by. It's very difficult to escape from, and certainly in our industry where, um, you know, so on social media where you're just you know you you're just getting told how wonderful you are all the time, and it's I think really easy to fall into that trap. Firstly, becoming addicted to it, and secondly, believing it. And I think that I think when you when you start concentrating too much on your brand, you're essentially concentrating too much on yourself. And I think that's when it becomes um, 
where you lose objective that you know the the idea of objective journalism i think ego is hugely destructive in that sense we also work in an industry which there is a lot of ego in our industry the whole media is absolutely jam-packed with ego so people's motives are often um i think one thing and their public um expose of their motives is something else and I see it a lot in conservation. I call them ego warriors in conservation. <laughs> and I hate it. I hate the fact that people will use, you know, the destruction of the world's, you know, ecosystems and natural forces to make themselves look good. I actually, I really hate it. I find it really offensive. And you can see it across so many genres of journalism. It, it, how damaging it is, I, I don't know. I don't, you know, maybe it's just not that important. But... um I think it's damaging to to journalism and the hero narrative of of photographers or explorers and everything else is is just crap as far as I'm concerned. I mean, part of it um, is a result of how competitive the industry is. And you do have to scream louder than the person next to you and, and show the images and share them and post, 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 post all the time. Um, and so there's a balance, I, I would imagine, between, you know, you're, you're awfully uh, cheeky with your your Instagram feed. You post things that you just find funny. Mm. And I see other curated feeds where people would, I would never, I would never post that. And you seem to just sort of have fun with it. Because I'm, because my followers aren't a bunch of people I want something from. They're just a bunch of people, <laughs> and I don't. I don't need or want anything from them. I'm not trying to make. I'm not. There's nothing. I'm not trying to make myself look good. I'm not trying to do anything. Um, and so I I interact with them in the way I think Instagram was created, which is a fun platform to share stuff with. Um, I think when you when you turn it into something else, when you turn it into a business, those people become customers and everything you do becomes about selling yourself to them. And what's really interesting being a Brit in America is the British are very cynical and we don't like show-offs and we pull them down when we see them. And in America, it's completely different. And so what you see, certainly in photography is is that actually the louder you tell everyone how brilliant you are the more they believe you and so you do prosper from it you get more work from it you make more money from it you become more successful from telling everyone how brilliant you are and as a photographer you've got to nowadays you have to make that choice do you want to do that or and you're gonna you're gonna make more and you're gonna it's all gonna be great or do you want to, as far as I'm concerned, um, stick to yourself and your humanity, and you know, and not I, I not sell it too hard. And then, do you think you can? I'm have being as much? really diplomatic. I know. <laughs> yeah. Do you think you can move the needle as much though, in terms of like making uh, policy changes, creating conservation areas? I, I mean, you went and bought a chunk of the rainforest, but um, do you think that there's a balance between shouting at the top of your lungs about how great you are versus shouting about 
the conservation issues to move the needle in an effort to actually conserve those places. I think we get what what we to get too confused with is shouting about what you know how bad everything is um, as a result and, and trying to make ourselves look good at the same time. You know, conservation comes about from in depth. Um, policy changes at governmental levels between really smart NGOs and governments. It doesn't really come about from putting pictures on Instagram. It's a lovely idea. The idea of raising awareness is a, you know, the phrase raising awareness has been banded about forever. Raising awareness has a, you know, it's good to an extent, but actually it doesn't, you know, we all know polar bears are in trouble. I need to see another picture of a polar bear to know that. We all know what that the, the Amazon is catching fire. I don't need to. I post them. I don't need to. I, we all know it. So we know what the big conservation issues are on the planet. Um, we don't need to doing raising awareness professionally on Instagram or social media. To me, is a is a zero sum game in the sense that we know what the problems are. We need to be focusing more on solving those problems on a on a very through policy and and so how do you move someone in your mind from thoughts and prayers type comments to donating to legitimate ngos and or moving the needle to help protect these areas that you're so passionate about that are providing oxygen for us to breathe um that are uh, yeah i mean that's a really tricky question i mean that we currently live in a state where we um, we probably over expose the problem so much that all we do is create you know mass helplessness and I think this is the other problem you, you get this baseline fatigue on or feed fatigue I remember scrolling past a picture of a, oh, the, some um, northern white rhino just gone extinct and I scroll I remember scrolling past it and catching myself, thinking, oh, my God, I just, you know, this feature's just gone extinct. I just scroll past it because I'm so used. Because, of course, it's your feeds as well. I, I follow all the conservation. I'm so used to just bad news and misery that I stopped. I've stopped. You just stop caring. It's just another another miserable nugget in your morning sit in bed and <laughs> scroll through your Instagram feed. Do you know what I mean? And it's awful. So you, we've just created like mass helplessness, and I don't really think that's a very good answer. Yes, people can give money to NGOs, but you know, creating mass helplessness is not a real way of doing. It. And they've proved that. You know, if charities show pictures of starving African kids, everyone's so bored and sick of it that it doesn't really work now as an enticing reason to give money to save. You know children in africa whatever these uh, you know these organizations are trying to get you to give money for but i think it's the same conservation now and so you're you're jet lagged you're just coming from africa what is it that you're working on over there now i'm doing a story on the serengeti and i sometimes in your life you stumble across a story that national geographic hasn't done for a long time <laughs> and i stumbled into the gold mine <laughs> this is this is what the largest migration on earth yeah i mean it's the most it's the most famous movement of animals on the planet it's like one and a half million wildebeest doing this daniel cycle i remember 
I remember sitting at home one day and thinking, I wonder when Geographic lasted the Serengeti. So I phoned Kathy, my editor, and she's like, she gets on her computer and she taps her and she goes, well, we haven't done it properly for 30 years. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, National Geographic hasn't done the Serengeti properly for 30 years. And that was, that was an easy story to get commissioned. <laughs> and so this was your second trip over there? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, I got one more trip. And these are... It's a big story. The images that at least you've shared on social are some of the best images I think you've ever shot. Is that... I know there's a tremendous amount of pressure and I know that you're your harshest critic. Are you feeling satisfied with what you're getting over there? Can you explain yeah. some of the images that you're creating? And Yeah, you know, I, I, I am a very harsh critic. I also... I don't... So I can love a picture and I don't associate it with me. I'm kind of removed from it. So people often think that I'm arrogant when I say, oh, that's an amazing picture, which is very rare because I don't think most of my pictures are. But I don't look at the picture and think, aren't I amazing for taking it? I look at it and think, wow, that's an awesome picture. So I'm, kind of, I'm, I'm sure other photographers are like, I'm, just, I'm removed from, to me, it's just an image. It's not me. It's a standalone image. Um, I went to Serengeti. I went to Kenya first, the Masai Mara, which is the northern part of the Serengeti. Most of the Serengeti's in... Um, Southern Tanzania. Sorry, northern Tanzania. Um, okay, so I go there and I, I know that it's just about the most photographed wildlife destination on Earth. So how the hell am I going to pull off? Well, kind of like when we did Yellowstone. Like, How the hell do you do something different? Um, and I was photographing some lions one evening. We had two cars. And my friend Simon was in one. And I gave him my big... Um, Pro photo strobe, it's a huge strobe studio light. And I got him to park at a you know, ninety degree angle. And so this is a flash, a big yeah, flash. A big system. flash. And I started shooting these pictures of these lions with this flash and the sun was setting and they looked kind of yeah, all right. So I you know, I got back to camp that night and looked and yeah, it's yeah, I can make this work. And I had the idea before, but I hadn't actually tried it until then. And then the next day we went really early, we went before sunrise. These two male lions are eating this massive eland, which is this like a huge bull, huge great thing, and the most extraordinary sunrise behind them. And I got Simon to park, you know, again at like a hundred, hundred and ten degrees from me in his, in the other car, and I'm on the radio, and I I'm shooting these pictures against this sunrise with this Simon, you know, holding this flash, and they just kicked ass <laughs> and i'm like oh holy crap this is what this story is going to look like and so from then on the idea is to to shoot the wildlife like that very controlled they look fake they're so controlled they're shot between like 50 and 100 maybe 200 mil there's no long lenses there's no wide angles they're shot to look like museum dioramas and the idea is not only to get the light perfect, but you want the kind of perfect positioning of all the characters in it. So I was photographing a hyena den, and I shot it every single night for 10 days until I had that perfect sunset. You know, the sun's just just dropping the horizon. And then the, like all the cast of characters are there, and it looks like a, like a jigsaw puzzle box. And you just keep shooting until you get this kind of permanent... Per, sorry, perfect choreography of the animals and the light, and it's incredibly time-consuming and expensive. <laughs> but when it works, it, it it looks awesome. And one image you shared of a giraffe, 
is just incredible where the there's there's a tree that's backlit yeah and you filled with the flash the the texture sort of that leopard look to the giraffe yeah and it's a, it's about so bringing that the flat what the flash does it brings that subject off the background because you're slightly behind it and you're lighting it it's it's lifting it off the background and it and and because it's so unusual to see a draft lit like that, that's, you know, and it's got to be sunrise or sunset. I mean, you're working like a 20-minute window on either side. Um, what it's allowing you to do is expose that sunset or sunrise so that it's not just black Right, just a foreground. black silhouette. Yeah, you've actually got texture in it from that light. And I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm, everything's shot two stops underexposed. And the flash is coming. So I'm having to underexpose the flash by two stops because then I'm lifting it back up. And basically, if, if the detail's there, I'm using it. Yeah. That's my kind of mantra with it. And so what is the story, like, what is the premise of the story? It's documenting essentially the migration or specific animals? or It's just a big umbrella story on the state of the ecosystem. So, you know, I was photographing everything from um, center pivot you know, intensive agriculture to charcoal extraction, which is devastating the place, to uh, NGOs coming in and doing dentistry in the Maasai communities, to lions, to cheetahs, you know, the whole spectrum of what, how, what is the Serengeti and what state is it in now? What an incredible privilege. It's incredible. Oh, it's just a dream job. <laughs> I guess like every day I'm there like, holy crap this is just i you know i can't it's the most beautiful job i could ever imagine i'm very lucky to have it and so you've got one more trip back yeah i got two more months and you've submitted images to your editor now who's a friend of yours yeah kathy yeah and she's become a mentor to you i mean you ping things back and forth and talk about what's working or yeah i mean kathy and i talk almost every day well we email almost every day um She's been the greatest mentor I've ever had. She's just been a ma- first time I met her. I met her in London in 2003 in Bristol, actually. And I took her out for dinner, and I said, "She was the senior natural history picture editor." And I said, um, "I just want to." I she I met her because she came to a film festival, and I just won the cinematography award. So she said, "All right, you know, basically, I." I earned my position to take her out for dinner. <laughs> so I said, look, I want to shoot stills for you. And she said, well, show me some stills. I said, well, I haven't shot a still for 10 years. <laughs> and she's like, well, how can you come up and tell me you want to shoot for the magazine? I'm like, well, all right, I'll go and buy a camera. And she said, look, if you can shoot stills like you shot that film, I'll give you a job. It's because I'd shot this film on my um, otters and kingfishers in my garden and won this award. So I went away and I bought a camera and I shot Kingfishers for a year. And she came back the following year to the UK. And I took her out and I showed her my pictures. And she's like, yeah, you're going to have to do better than that. <laughs> so I went away for another year and I shot more pictures. And eventually, after like three years, she goes, all right, I'll give you a contract. But you're not having any money, basically. And I shot off my own back in my spare time for six years before she took that article on Kingfishers. And then... She, and after that, she then assigned me a story. And when you get assigned a story is when you become a Nat Geo photographer. And then she assigned otters. <laughs> Do you still feel pressure when you go out? And Are you still not anxious, but... 
Yeah, maybe anxious, like butterflies. Yeah, hundred percent. I think, um, and in fact, this is why the Serengeti story is so nice because once I got those lion pictures, I relaxed and thought, okay, we've got this. And not only that, I'm working in a place where the animals are all tame, and it's you know it's just amazing. So it's just you can't you can't really screw it up. But my previous story on, on uh, the Osa Peninsula in Costa Rica, I didn't really enjoy that at all. It was just the pressure, the relentless pressure on me to 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 get stuff and get these get these images. There's always a point in your shoot where you think, "All right, I've nailed this. Now I can relax and enjoy shooting." But sometimes that never comes. And then, do you find sometimes when you come back from the shoot that you've actually got better images than you sort of thought, right? Like, yeah, I, like, I, I mean, I got oh, there's from, actually there's a solid set in here. Yeah, I got back from Tanzania six days, seven days ago, and that was a big, expensive shoot. And I came out thinking, damn, I didn't really pull that one off. I pulled the previous one off in Kenya, but you know, I got some images. But and then I spent four days going through the thirty-five thousand pictures I took. And by the end of that, you think, okay, no, I've got a set of images here. Because you're pulling stuff you haven't really had time to look at. And, yeah. And so now you'll edit edit some images down, call them down, send them to her. You'll communicate back and forth. And where's your next, uh, where will you post up for your, these next two months that you're going? I'll go back to the uh, northern Tanzania for a month and then Kenya. Although I'm supposed to shoot, you know, my main thing is to shoot tourism in Kenya in August, but. I don't think there's going to be any tourism no, in Kenya. Be distancing. North, it's going to be difficult. So, I don't know. TBD. Yeah, you know what? I'm not one of these people that spends months planning. I just rock up and see, where the wind, <laughs> see which way the wind blows. And that actually causes me loads of anxiety a lot of the time because it's just burning money and you've got no idea what you're shooting. But, you know, it usually works out. Yeah. Well, so far the images you've shared are incredible i'm looking forward to it have you uh have you focused on more human stories intentionally on this like with the the coal extraction or yeah in particular are you trying to find a balance between the sort of the romantic idea of the serengeti and these safaris that people go on versus the reality of (laughs) totally blown a hole in the romantic idea the thing is right if you want the truth look the other way and that really is the case in tanzania so and Kenya, particularly Kenya, actually, in the Maasai Mara. You know, you're looking at this cheetah, it's killing a wildebeest, and you turn around and there's 50 cars behind you. Do you know what I mean? That's the truth. And no one shows that. And my job is to show that because actually it's far more interesting than the cheetah killing the wildebeest. Is the absolute mayhem and craziness of the, the way the circus is following this cheetah around. Um and I went, you know, I went and worked with. The, so you've got all, all around the Maasai Mara and the Serengeti, you've got these Maasai bomas, you know, these communities of Maasai that that um, that dance and perform for tourists in the what they would call an authentic way. But of course, it's not authentic; it's a caricaturized version of themselves for tourists. And so, I really wanted to go and cover that. And so, if, uh, I mean, at first I was going into these really remote Maasai communities and then I thought, just my, I'm doing this all wrong. I need to go into the ones that perform for tourists because that's the truth of it. And the truth is, is that 
in order to survive in a place which uh, you know you've got a, a growing Maasai population, which well, long comes with that comes a growing cattle population, which puts huge pressure on them to find grazing, which puts huge pressure on the animals. You know, to do the zebras, the wildebeest to find graze, which puts pressure on the predators. So basically, you've got this this kind of pressurized system all around the Maasai Mara. And what some of the Maasai are doing is they're diversifying out from cattle to tourism in the same way that in the UK, the farmers have had to start farm shops or start events on their, you know, they're, they're finding another income stream. And it's been really interesting. I spent a week hanging out with these, these guys who are like 18, 19, the, the Morans, they're called, the, you know, the young warriors. And we would just sit and wait for carfuls of tourists to show up and then they'd all jump for them and i was there to photograph the tourists photographing them jumping which to me is far more interesting than a photo of the maasai jumping and it was by the end of it they'd all get that like i'd be photographing them and they'd catch my eye and they'd all get the giggles on because we had so much fun but that interplay to me is really represents what the Maasai Mara is, for instance, which is this little nugget of the Serengeti. And it's the clashing of two cultures. And I've got some hilarious pictures of it. And it's very easy to be cynical about it. But actually, you've got two cultures that are both getting something from each other. You know, one's getting a photo for their... to show their friends when they get home. And the other is my you know my assistant sam well at the time who's put him you know he's one of these guys that jumps for the tourists who's put himself through engineering school in nairobi off those tourist dollars so it's very easy to be cynical about it but actually it's a pretty i think pretty wonderful thing but it is the truth of the place and my job on this story has been to turn the camera around to find the truth well i think that stems from you know what what we're talking about your brutal honesty and um just the way you see the world. And I think that that shows in some of the images that I've seen as well up in Yellowstone where, you know, there's people mulling about and you're shooting them at truck stops or, you know, pull-offs on the side of the road. And I'm imagining you're doing the same in Africa. Yeah, because it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to deny it. I do want it to be funny as well. <laughs> well, where can people uh, hopefully have you maybe message them back on social media where where can they find you yeah no the instagram is the way isn't it yeah the it gram is, it is the way right now i don't know why i'm not charlie hamilton james on instagram i'm chamilton james I, I don't know i have no idea why you use your middle name all the time though that's not my middle name charlie hamilton james hamilton's not my middle name it's my sir. hamilton james is my surname oh it's just an american you got <laughs> <laughs> well uh if people want to see more, they can follow you on Instagram, Charlie Hamilton James. I just pulled up your website. Is that new? Oh, yeah. No, I redid it yeah. a, few weeks, oh, a couple of months ago. Yeah, it's a beauty. Oh, thank you. I What's just... the URL? www.charliehamiltonjames.com, I think. And there you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for stopping by, Charlie. Good to see you.